And now, for the show reflecting on classic radio, Hollywood 360, with your host, Carl Amari. Who's that strange-looking man behind you? That's Carl. I met him at the laundry, man. Sam, sweetheart. I don't know what to do, Rabbi. Every night he listens to the radio. I can't keep him away. The Lone Ranger, uh, the Shadow, the Masked Avenger. Uh, this is not good. It tends to induce bad values, false dreams, lazy habits. Want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? Guys! 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 Fellas, think we could listen to the radio or something? Hello, everyone. I'm Carl Amari, and this is Hollywood 360, the radio show that presents the best in classic radio. This hour on Hollywood 360, Jack Webb stars on a Christmas episode of Dragnet from 1950. Then a mysterious Christmas present arrives at 79 Wistful Vista, the home of Faber, McGee, and Molly from 1939. With me, as always, is my radio co-host, Lisa Wolf. What's up, Lisa? Hi, Carl. Hey, are you enjoying all the Christmas programming we're airing? I sure am. We'll have Christmas programming (laughs) all throughout this month. It's that time of year. Yes, it is. And the, uh, the show we're about to play is very heartbreaking. It's a very famous episode of Dragnet. They did this on radio and on TV. It's about a little boy who goes missing at Christmas time. And also, there's a missing rifle that was going to be a Christmas present for the boy. It's from 1950, December 21st to be exact. It's called the 22 caliber rifle for Christmas. Here's Jack Webb in part one of Dragnet. The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to homicide detail. A small boy is reported missing from his home. His age, nine years. Foul play is suspected. Your job, find him. It was Thursday, December 22nd. It was cold in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of homicide. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Thad Brown, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was on the way into work, and it was 3.55 p.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. Hi, Joe. Ben, what's doing? Oh, pretty quiet. How's your mother? Oh, that cold's still hanging on. Bad cough. Doc says nothing serious. My kid's got the same thing. Must be some kind of a virus going around. Yeah. Is that a new suit you got on? Oh, yeah. Ma figured I needed one. Let me see. Oh, yeah, that's a nice shade of blue. Where'd you get it? Quincy's down in South Fig. Look okay? Turn around. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's a good fit. Uh, did you get all the reports on the Webster case yet? Yeah, all taken care of. Let me get it. Homicide, Friday. Well, this is Levinson, Unit 113J. Got something for you. Yeah, Harry, what's doing? Doherty and I are out here on Collis Avenue. Four six five six. Trying to track down a nine-year-old boy. What's the story? Kid's missing. Suspicion of foul play. How long has he been gone? About two hours. Looks like a job for homicide. How do you figure? Kid was last seen playing in the backyard of his home. Yeah. We checked over the yard. Find anything? Blood stains. Lots of them. They look new. 
Ben and I left a message for Chief of Detectives Thad Brown, and we went over to the crime lab, picked up Lieutenant Lee Jones, and drove out the Arroyo Seco Freeway to Collis Avenue. It was an average neighborhood. Number 4656 was a one-story green stucco residence situated on the corner of Collis Avenue and Harrison Drive. Beyond the backyard was a tract of undeveloped land covered with scrub oak. Harry Levinson from Highland Park Juvenile was waiting for us in front of the house. Back this way, fellas. I'm coming, Link. Wait till I get my back. Okay. Who notified you that the boy was missing, Harry? The mother. Said she went out to do some Christmas shopping about 11 this morning, left the boy home. She came back about 2 this afternoon, he was gone. What's the name? Johnstone. Kid's name is Stanley, 9 years old. Mm-hmm. Was this gate open like this when you got here? Oh, yeah, I haven't touched this thing. Uh, here are the stains over here, Lieutenant Jones, uh, along the edge of the walk, see? Yeah. Let me see. Quite a few stains, huh? Looks like it might be blood. I'll try some benzidine on these spots here. Yeah, there we are. See what happens? Where's the kid's mother now, Harry? In the house. Darty's talking to her. Did you talk to any of the neighbors? People next door. Uh, one's on this side. They couldn't tell us anything. There it is, fellas. Yelly. These spots are covered with benzidine. They're turning blue. Blood stains, all right. Can't say definitely whether it's human or animal blood. Mm-hmm. You have to go back to the lab to run it through. Yeah, a biological precipitant test. Hand me one of those glass vials from my bag, will you? Yeah. Okay, here you are. Thanks. Scrape some of these flakes off for a test. There we are. How soon can you tap the blood for us, Lee? Precipitant tests won't run more than 20 minutes. It'll take three or four hours to run a blood group and go. That's it. Anything else you want to check? Levinson, anything else? Oh, uh, right here in my handkerchief. Empty shell. That marker over there by the rose bush, that's where I found it. Uh, from a 22, huh? Yeah. Might tie in, might not. Mark it and dump it in this envelope, will you? Shell. There you go. Did you get out a missing broadcast in the boy here? Uh, Darty did about a half hour ago. Oh, here's a description here. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mother know about the bloodstains? No, we didn't tell her. She's worried enough already. And she has no idea what might have happened to her boy? No more than we do. She checked all her friends, relatives. We're covering the neighborhood. No trace so far. Not much to go on. Bloodstains, empty cartridge. Could mean a hundred things. Mm. Any ideas, Franny? Yeah, just one, and I don't like it. p.m. Thursday, December 22nd. The neighborhood search for nine-year-old Stanley Johnstone continued. Lee Jones went back to the crime lab to start the precipitant test and the blood grouping. Levinson and his partner, Doherty, from Highland Juvenile, stood by. We called Chief of Detectives Thad Brown, and he ordered up a special detail to aid in the search for the missing boy. Ben and I questioned the boy's mother, Mrs. Ruth Johnstone, a woman in her early 40s. She seemed fairly calm under the circumstances. Mrs. Johnstone, um... Is your boy standing in the habit of wandering off without telling you where he's going? No, he's not in the habit of wandering off, but he has done it before. When was the last time, Miss Johnstone? You don't have any children, do you, Sergeant Friday? No, I'm not married. Well, there comes that time in every young boy's life when he feels that it's time to leave home, to go out on his own. Usually happens somewhere around 8 to 10. I think I know what you mean. I've got a boy. Well, then you know how it is. My husband and I scolded Stanley one day after school. He was quite put out about it. He thought George and I were unfair. Packed a few of his things and left. How long was he gone? Oh, no time at all. About two hours. I was worried about him, but my husband said to leave him alone. Said every boy had to go through that stage. Well, and you think he's run away from home again this time? Yes, I think so. He's been gone about four hours now, and 
have a funny feeling about it. Did you and his father have some misunderstanding with the boy recently? Well, that's just it. We haven't. I don't mind telling you now that we're talking about it. I'm, I am getting worried. Any place around that he might like to visit? Hobby shop, playground, where he might be? Yeah, there's um, Jensen's model shop and little Shanna Burroughs, but I've already called him and he hasn't been seen all day. I called all his friends. They have no idea where he is either. We'd like a list of all his friends and the places that he was known to frequent. Oh, yeah, all right, I'll give them to you. What do you suppose he is? Where's your husband now, Miss Johnstone? Oh, he's at work. George works for the city. He's a fireman. What house is he stationed at? Engine Company 12. He's working the A platoon. He'll be home tomorrow morning. I haven't told him that Stanley's gone. Was well, there any chance that the boy might be down at the firehouse with his father? No. No, he seldom goes down there anymore. No, I don't think he's there. I'm awfully worried. May I call my husband? Certainly. Go right ahead. I know George will be worried. Stanley's been gone too long. Hello? May I speak with George Johnstone? This is Mrs. Johnstone. Thank you. I hate to call George at his work. Yes, ma'am. Does your husband own a gun? Yes, he does. What caliber? Do you know? Well, it's a forty-five automatic. He got it. George? This is Ruth. George, is Stanley down there with you by any chance? Oh. No, I can't find him anywhere. He hasn't been here when I came home from my shopping. Uh, there are two policemen here. Oh, no, dear. I'll call you if we don't find him soon. All right, dear. Yes, you too. Goodbye. Well, I, I didn't think he'd be with George. That forty-five. is that the only gun in the household? Well, yes. Why are you asking about guns? Is, has anything happened that you're not telling me about? No, ma'am. Just routine checking. We'll have to take a look at that forty-five, though, if you don't mind. Maybe I should tell you. We... We do have another gun in the house, but it's all wrapped up. George bought it for Stanley's Christmas present. May we see it, please? Well, yes. Will, will you have to unwrap it? Yes, I'm afraid so. Well, I think I can reach it. We we had to hide it. So let me see. Well, here's the paper it was wrapped in. Stanley must have found it. It's gone. See, here's the gift card in the box the gun came in. The rifle. Can I look at that box, ma'am? Thank you. How about it, Joe? Twenty-two caliber. Thursday, December 22nd, 5.15 p.m. It was getting dark. The search for the missing boy continued. We checked the list of Stanley Johnstone's friends. None of them or their parents had any idea of his whereabouts. We talked with Levinson again. He had been in touch with the detail combing the neighborhood. They had found nothing. We went down to Collis Avenue and 10th Street, service station on the corner. One nickel, Joe? No, I got one. You watch for that, huh? Yeah. Okay. City Hall. Two six six seven, please. Two six six seven. Hi, Lee. Joe Friday. Yeah, Joe. Any sign of the Johnson kid? No, not yet. How are you coming? Finished the precipitant test. It's human blood. Yeah. Working in the blood group now. Do you know what type the Johnson boy has? Well, we didn't want to upset his mother. I thought we'd wait till the last thing. We're still in the neighborhood. Yeah, check with the family physician. That way you won't disturb Yeah, we figured on that. Oh, just a minute, Lee. Yeah, Ben. Boss just pulled up. Okay. Uh, Thad Brown's out here now. I'll check you later, Lee, huh? Yeah, right, Joe. All right, goodbye. 
Gentlemen, how's it going? Just checked with Lee Jones. Yeah, I know. It's human blood. What do you think? We talked with the boy's mother, Miss Johnston. Found a gun, Mason. Yeah. Caliber's the same as the empty casing that Levinson found. Twenty-two. You said the gun was missing. Yeah, the Johnstones were going to give it to the boy as a Christmas present. They had it hidden, but it's gone now. Any idea who took it? Well, they left the Christmas wrapping behind. I think it was the kid. There's blood on the ground and an empty shell. That's enough for me. I'm going to stay with it. Something's got to break. Yeah. I hope it's not the hearts of that kid's parents. Oh, hi, Chief. I've been looking for you, Friday. What do you got, Harry? Found the gun. New twenty-two rifle. Strong smell of cordite. I'd say it's been recently fired. Where'd you find it, Levinson? Uh, back up there in that scrub oak. Up behind the Johnston house. Mrs. Johnstone identified it. Buckley took it down to the crime lab. Thanks, Harry. Uh, is Miss Johnston okay? Mm, pretty sick now. Kilby came up with something else. What's that? There's another one missing. An eight-year-old boy. 6.30 p.m. We talked with Officer Killaby about the other missing boy. He told us that his name was Stephen Morheim, eight years old. His family had just moved into the neighborhood, and it seemed that no one besides the Morheim family knew that the boys played together. Mrs. Morheim told us that Stephen told her that he was going out to play and that he'd be home by 6 o'clock for dinner. She told us that he was an unusually prompt boy and almost never overstayed his playtime. We got a description of the Morheim boy and put out a missing broadcast. We called the Johnstone's family doctor. He told us that Stanley's blood was type O. At 7 p.m., we talked again with Mrs. John Morheim. Are you sure Mrs. Johnstone doesn't know where the boys are? She has no idea, Miss Morheim. This is terrible. I feel there's more to this thing. Something you're not telling me. Well, there's no use to upset you until we know a few things for sure. Then you are holding back something. Oh, please try not to worry, Ms. Morheim. There are certain questions we'll have to ask, routine questions in any kind of investigation. Is there anything else you want to know? Yes, ma'am. What is your boy's blood type? That's a funny question. You think anything's happened to him? Have you found him and you're not telling me? No, ma'am, we haven't found him. We don't think anything's happened to him. His blood type? Yes, ma'am. I think I have it written down in Stevie's baby book. Yes, here it is. Typo. Thank you. What if I might use your phone, please? Yes, of course. It's in the hall. Be right back, then. Yeah, okay. Two six six seven, please. Two six six seven. Oh. Hello, Ray. This is Friday. Lee there. Uh, just a minute, Joe. Take two, Lee. John speaking. Checking back, Lee. Uh, did you get the blood types on the two missing boys? Yeah, both boys type O. So are the stains, Joe. Type O. Eight p.m. Thursday, December twenty-second. Still no sign of either of the missing boys. Chief of Detectives Thad Brown went back to headquarters to direct the search from there. He dispatched another detail of 50 men to aid in the hunt for the missing youngsters. 8.30 p.m. was getting colder. The citrus growers were warned to expect a freeze. We went up the block to see Mrs. Johnstone. Her husband had quit work early and returned home. We talked with him. He could tell us nothing more than we already knew. We still had not informed either of the families about the bloodstains and the empty cartridge casing which had been discovered in the backyard of the Johnstone home was more than possible that they had a right to know about our findings, but Ben and I felt that there was no cause to add to the distress of the two families at this time. If the two missing boys were found alive and well, then the bloodstains and the cartridge case would be of no concern to the relieved parents. At 8.40 p.m., Ben and I left the Johnstone house and went to the home of Mr. and Mrs. John Morheim. Ms. Morheim, you said your husband worked at a market? Yes. He telephoned about 15 minutes ago and said he was closing up right away. 
He'll be here any minute. I do wish Stevie would call or come home. It's so cold out tonight. All he had on was a thin cotton jacket. Please try not to worry. We're doing everything we can. It's going to be all right. Stevie's father's such a sensitive man. He and the boy are so close. I know he's terribly upset. No, you're sure there's no place you might have forgotten? Some place where the boy might be? No, no place. No. Anything's happened to the boy, it'll just kill Joe. No, no. You sit still. I'll get it, Miss Morgan. Joe. Hi, Harry. The Johnstone kid. He's been found. He's home, Sergeant. He's come home. Thank God he's all right. Well, where's he been? Did he tell you? No. No, he didn't. He, his clothes were all dirty and he's acting strange. I've never seen him like this. How do you mean, Miss Johnson? Well, he just came in the front door and said, Hello, Mom. And then he sat down in a chair and stared at the floor. He won't talk to his father or me. Do you mind if I talk to him? No, go ahead. I asked him about the little Moorheim boy and he wouldn't tell me a thing. Where is he now? In the living room. Looks all right. Yes. Son. Son, this is a police officer. He he wants to talk to you. Now, don't be afraid, dear. He only wants to ask you some questions. Son. You see, Sergeant? Stanley, come on, look at me, son. Get your head up, youngster. Come on, now that's better. I had your mother pretty worried, you know that? You want to tell us where you've been? I wish you'd try to get him to eat a little something. You hear that, son? Want something to eat? Stanley, there's another little boy up the street who hasn't come home. Do you know where he is? His father and mother are worried about him, too, just like your folks were. You've got to help us find him, son. I... I killed him. I killed Steve with the twenty-two. We were only playing. But I killed him. How do you know you killed him? Maybe he's only hurt. Now, isn't that it? No, he's dead. I know he's dead. The gun went off. We forgot we put bullets in there. Where is he, Stanley? I hid him. I was scared. I didn't want anybody to find him. Where did you hide him, son? In a cave up on the hill. I didn't mean it. It was my pal. You want to show us where, son? Yes, I'll show you. Please don't send me to jail. 9.15 p.m., Thursday, December 22nd. Nine-year-old Stanley Johnstone led the way up the hill behind the backyard of his home. He showed us the wagon he moved the body in. His father came along with us. About 50 feet from the crest of the hill, the boy pointed to a thicket of scrub oak. There we found a small cave holding the body of Stephen Morheim. There was a single bullet wound in his chest just below his heart. He was dead. We covered the body. Stanley. Stanley, how did it happen? I knew my folks were going to give me the gun for Christmas. I knew where it was, and I got it. There was a box of bullets with it. Were you pointing the gun at Stephen? No, sir, I wasn't. I was chasing him. He tripped over the stump there in our backyard and fell. The gun hit him in the stomach. And it went off. Why do you think you killed him if you're telling us the truth? I'm telling the truth, honest. That's the truth. All right, I believe you, son. But why do you think you killed him? It was my gun. Steve would still be alive if I didn't go and get it. I should have waited till Christmas. It's all my fault. 
Where have you been all this time? In the cave with Steve. That's the first portion of Dragnet. More after these words. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. Hi, Carl Amari here. During the month of December, you can digitally download Amos and Andy Volume 1. Twelve comedy episodes of Amos and Andy Volume 1 is regularly priced at $19.99, but is yours for only $9.99 via digital download this month only. Also on sale during December at 50% off is Classic Radio's Greatest Christmas Shows Volume 1. Twelve Christmas episodes including Fibber McGee and Molly, The Great Gildersleeve, The Bing Crosby Show, My Favorite Husband, Nero Wolf, Our Miss Brooks, The Spence and more. Classic Radio's Greatest Christmas Shows Volume 1 is regularly priced at $19.99, but is yours for only $9.99 via digital download this month only. Visit ClassicRadioStore.com today and digitally download the Amos and Andy Show Volume 1 and Classic Radio's Greatest Christmas Shows Volume 1 at half price. In January, these two collections will go back to full price, so don't miss them while they're on sale during December. Log on to ClassicRadioStore.com. And now back to Hollywood 360 with Carl Amari. Now back to Dragnet. After a thorough investigation, Ben and I were convinced that the shooting of Stephen Morheim was accidental. Lieutenant Lee Jones' findings substantiated the John Stone Boy story even to the smallest detail. We put in a call to the coroner's office and acquainted him with the facts. He designated a local mortuary to handle the body pending autopsy and granted us permission to remove the body to the Morheim home. Mrs. Morheim collapsed. The family doctor was called. Ben and I sat in the living room to wait for John Morheim, the dead boy's father. Edith! Edith! Mr. Morheim? Yes. You the police? Yes, sir. Where's Edith? Where's my wife? Has my boy come home? Have you found him? Yes, sir. Where is he? Steve! Stevie! Where's Steve? He's hurt, isn't he? Yes, sir. Oh, where is he? I want to see him. He's in his room. How bad? Pretty bad. He's... He's dead. All right, if I go in? If you want to. Will you go with me? Sure. Don't make it any harder on yourself, Mr. Morheim. I want to see my boy. Stevie. Mr. Morheim. Stevie, Stevie, Stevie. Listen to me, son. We've got you a lot of nice things for Christmas. Everything you wanted. I, I got you the three new cars for the train. The, the one with the search lights. Really works. <laughs> Son, you, you... You got that new switch you wanted to it. Have a boy try. 
you can have a big thing out. You know that that new baseball that you saw? Well, I got it for you. right here. Won't you come in? It's all right, Mr. Johnstone. You, you're the boy that was with Stevie? Yes, sir. What's your name? Stanley. Stanley. I know it wasn't your fault, Stanley. I wonder if you'd do something for me. Yes, sir. I've got a lot of nice presents for Stevie. I know he'd want you to have them. I want to give them to you. Christmas Eve. Mom? I I think that would be a fine idea, son. Come on, Ben. December 24th, 1948, a coroner's inquest was held in the county morgue, city and county of Los Angeles, state of California. It was officially recorded that Stephen Morheim's death was the result of an accident. Stanley Johnstone, age nine, was absolved of any legal responsibility for his friend's death. You have just heard Dragnets, a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of acting chief of police, W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. And that's Dragnet from December 21st, 1950, with a 22 caliber rifle for Christmas, starring Jack Webb along with Barton Yarborough. Originally sponsored by Fatima Cigarettes, we removed the cigarette commercials, as heard on NBC. Before we tune in to Fibber, McGee, and Molly, I want to remind all of our listeners to go to our website, Hollywood360radio.com. At that website, you will see that we have a podcast there. Our entire four-hour Hollywood 360 show is podcast every single week. However, it is always one week behind the broadcast that we're airing on radio stations. But you can always pick up our podcast 
at Hollywood360radio.com. All right, it's time now for a good Christmas episode of Fibber, McGee, and Molly. Let's go back to December 19, 1939, for the package from Uncle Sycamore arrives. Here's Jim and Marion Jordan as Fibber, McGee, and Molly. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber, McGee, and Molly. The makers of Johnson's Wax and Johnson's Self-Polishing Glow Coat present Marion and Jim Jordan as Fibber, McGee, and Molly with Bill Thompson, Jimmy Shields, and Billy Mills Orchestra. Well, Molly has convinced Fibber that his back-fence quarrels with neighbor Gildersleeve have no place during the Yuletide season. Result? Here, shoveling the snow off Gildersleeve's sidewalk... In a burst of virtue and perspiration, we find Fibber McGee and Molly. Ah, nice work, McGee. Only 20 feet to go. Are you tired, dearie? Oh, you are I tired. (laughs) And look at these blisters. Oh, heavenly days. They are big, aren't they? Big? I ain't had such blisters since I played hooky from the fifth grade. How could you get blisters on your hand playing hooky? Did I say they was on my hand? (laughs) Uh, Go to work. You're almost through now. Okay. (sighs) Well, all finished. Am I tired? And a nice job, too, dearie. Yeah, but it ain't right, Molly. Doing all this work for a big heel like Gildersleeve. Well, a heel never gets anywhere without some good soul to lead the way. Wow. Let's go in the house. I'm cold after that. Hey, Fibber. Fibber, Molly, I've got something for you. Oh, look, McGee, Mr. Wilcox. Uh Uh-oh. This may be that thing, folks. (laughs) Better start taking up the rugs. Well, and what have you got for us, Mr. Wilcox? <laughs> a big package. Here, take it, Fibber. Oh, is it from you, Mr. Wilcox? No, I just happened to see your name on it at the post office, so I told the mailman I'd save him a trip. Oh, oh gee, thanks, Arlo. What you been doing at the post office? Oh, I just sent my little nephew a snake for Christmas. Oh. Snake? That's kind of dangerous, ain't it, for a kid? Oh, it couldn't hurt him. It's just a baby snake. How do you know? Well, it's still carrying its little rattle. Oh. <laughs> well, so long, folks. <laughs> Minds me of the time when I was a boy, Molly. Somebody gave me a Great Dane for my birthday, but I had to give it away. Why? Cost too much to feed him. Had the house broke before he was. Oh. <laughs> well, come on, let's go in and open up this package. Okay. Who's the package from, Molly? Look, McGee. Huh? It's from your Uncle Sycamore. No. Not old Uncle Sycamore McGee. Right. Why, he wouldn't send anybody anything. That guy's tighter than the middle sardine. But you always said he was a very wealthy man. Sure, he is, but he's such a miser, that's probably a couple of pounds of sawdust to refill that rag doll he gave me when I was three years old. Oh, McGee. And I'll bet he foreclosed the mortgage on the saloon to get the sawdust. Well, whatever it is, I don't think we should open it until Christmas. Uncle Sycamore would be offended. Now, wait a minute, Molly. Wait a minute. As the guy says when he's seen the gal in the old-fashioned bathing suit, there must be more here than meets the eye. (laughs) Maybe the old spider has finally got a hunk of Christmas spirit. Yeah, like old Scrooge. Maybe he's broken down at last. Sure, he's getting pretty well along in years, you know. Maybe he's begun to realize that I'm old enough now to handle large sums of money, and maybe he's... Oh, shucks, I'm dreaming. 
Well, don't wake up now. Go on and dream. I was just thinking the old skinflint might really send a wad of dough to... Oh, no, no. I'm wrong. Not that old tightwad. How can a man be so stingy? I don't know. They say he's so close-fisted the only way a fortune teller can read his palm is with an x-ray. Yeah. What'd you say? X-ray? Yeah. That's it, Molly. You got it. X-ray. We'll get that package x-rayed. That won't hurt Uncle Sycamore's feelings. Wonderful, McGee, wonderful. Oh, you're so clever. Oh, oh it was nothing that any red-blooded American boy could... Get your hat, Molly. We're going downtown and get this box x-rayed. We'll even take a cab. I'll be right with you, dear. Oh, I'm a millionaire. If that package you got there is more than a sack of navy beans. <laughs> you ready, Molly? Let's go. Here we go. <laughs> Here you are, buddy. The Whistle Vista X-ray Laboratory, second door on the left. Here's your change, Doc. Oh, go. That's all right. Keep it, bud. Gee, thanks. This will come in handy. I was all out of Sin Sin. <laughs> well, what did you swallow? We ain't swallowed anything, sis. Oh, really? No. Most everybody comes in here swallowed something. Hairpins or coins or tacks. I'm writing a book about it. I can't even swallow that. What's the title of your book, dearie? How to Get to the Seat of Your Trouble Without Calling an Usher. I'm author myself, you know, sis. What did you write? The Midget's Britches. It was one of them short shorts. Now, look, miss. We want some X-ray pictures taken of this package. Yeah. I see. If you'll sit down, the technician will see you in a few minutes. Oh, fine. Oh, McGee, you know, I'm a little nervous. Me too. What if there is a million dollars in this package? Oh, don't say too much about it, Mom. Oh, good day, my dear. Will you please see if my x-ray plates are ready? Oh, sorry, Mrs. Uppington. They won't be ready until tomorrow. Hey, Molly, look who's here. A big flake off the upper crust. <laughs> well, for goodness sakes. Yoo-hoo, Mrs. Uppington. Oh, how do you do, Mrs. McGee? Oh, so nice to see you. Oh, and Mr. McGee. Hi, Uppy. <laughs> Did I hear you asking about some x-ray plates, Mrs. Uppington? Uh, yes, yes, they're for my brother Stuyvesant. Uh, Stuyvesant is an operatic baritone, you know. He played here last winter. Oh, oh so? yes. Stuyvesant Uppingtonio. We heard him in the Barber of Seville. Remember, McGee? Barber who? Let me think. Barber Oh, yeah. Wasn't he the fat guy in the red tights that come out and hollered, Next? <laughs> Please, Mr. McGee. Well, uh, what happened to Stuyvesant, Mrs. Uppington? Oh, it happened last week at the annual banquet of the Union League Club. Ooh. I was there with Stuyvesant, uh -huh. and I noticed he was eating entirely too fast. So I spoke to him about it. Sty, I said, you mustn't eat so fast. Really, I said, you're acting like a pig, Sty. <laughs> Dear, dear. Yes. And just then it... Oh, what a horrible moment. He swallowed a lace doily. Oh. Not stupid, My, my. He was hungry, wasn't he? Does he like Chinese food, Uppy? I got an extra laundry bag he can have if he'll take uh, Please. <laughs> Mr. McGee, I, I don't consider Stuyvesant's predicament any cause for levity. Oh. Particularly in view of the outrageous newspaper publicity. What do the newspapers do, Uppy? Oh, that horrible nickname they gave for Stuyvesant huh? when they saw the x-rays of that lace doily over his heart. What nickname, Mrs. Uppington? Uh, the human valentine. Oh. Isn't, isn't that perfectly disgusting? I, oh, well, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Let me talk at your suppose is in that package, Molly. Here, here, let me heft it a minute. Here it is. Hmm. Weighs about nine pounds. I wonder what weighs nine pounds. I did when I was born. <laughs> Hello there, baby. Here's the film, Jordan. Oh, thank you. Better stop by again tomorrow. Sure will, baby. Uh... Well, hello there, Johnny. Hello, daughter. Glad to see you. Hello, Mr. Oldtimer. I see you're working for some film company. Yep. They say it's got a great future, too. But I don't know. I still like the old stereoptican. (laughs) (laughs) You would. Incidentally, you know who invented the magic lantern? Old Diogenes, when he was looking for an honest man. He knew he couldn't do it without magic. That's pretty good, Johnny. But that ain't the... See, what am I talking about? That wasn't either good. (laughs) Hey! Oh, the way I heard it... (laughs) One feller says to tell a feller... See, he says... Have you seen Tom Hope's new picture, The Cat and the Canary? No, says the second feller. Anyway, that ain't Tom Hope's picture. It's Bob Hope. Oh, says the first feller. I thought he'd play the part of the cat. <laughs> well, so long, kids. Merry Christmas. Same to you, old-timer. Tom Hope. I wonder what would happen if the cat and the canary ever played a double bill with of mice and men. I'll bet you... <laughs> i bet the mice... It's... Woohoo! One side, everybody. Let me see the X-ray man. <laughs> I'm afraid you can't see him right now, Grandma. He's busy. Okay, Shorty. I just wanted my collarbone x-rayed. I think I busted it. Huh? But it don't really matter. I hardly ever wear collars anyway. Yippee! <laughs> How'd you bust the collarbone, Grandma? I fell off a boxcar bumming my way back from Atlanta. Woohoo! What a trip. Yeah? I went down there for the preview of Gone with the Wind. Wowie, what a picture. Only thing is, Skippy, I didn't get the big ovation I expected. Ovation? What did you expect? And that Clark Gable never even give me a tumble. The rip. <laughs> now, wait a minute. What is this? Why should they have paid any attention to you, Grandma? Shorty? Huh? It was a long time ago when you was only a boy. Yeah? But I was the first girl ever tested for Scarlett O'Hara. <laughs> oh, them were the good old days. Say, girlie, when the dark is free, give me a ring at the bowling alley. Woohoo! One side for a glamour girl. Hmm. Glamour girl, eh? Say, she might have come from a good southern family at that, McGee. Yeah. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if hers was one of the first families of Virginia to go barefoot. Mr. McGee, the technician will see you now. Oh, thank you, dearie. Bring the package, McGee. Okay. Ooh, careful, Molly. It's kind of dark in here. Yeah. You the x-ray technician, bud? Certainly am, Wogglebug. Yes, indeed. Oh, Boomer. <laughs> yes, Horatio K. Boomer. Expert on the short wave and the long haul. Say, uh, we want to have this package x-rayed, Mr. Boomer. We think there's money in it. Yeah. Money? Yeah. Why, of course, of course. Yeah. Now, look here, Boomer. I won't stand for this. You... Oh, hello, Fibber and Molly. Excuse me. Oh, don't mind us, Harlow, but ain't you in the wrong office? This is an X-ray, not a fluoroscope. Uh... Well, never mind that. Now, look here, Boomer. You're a jip. Now, there is a very penetrating bit of character analysis. Go on, Mr. Wilcox. 
Yes. Proceed with the indictment, my long-limbed linoleum lover. <laughs> That's the first portion of Faber, McGee, and Molly. More of Hollywood 360 after these words. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. Hi, this is Sarah Knight Adamson. I'm the national film critic for the website sarahsbackstagepass.com. I'm a member of the Broadcast Film Critics Association in L.A. and a voting member of the Critics' Choice Film Awards. Coming up next, you'll hear a film review of a movie that's playing near you. Mudbound, a drama that takes place after World War II in 1946 on a cotton farm in Mississippi. It's based on the novel written by Hilary Jordan with themes of poverty, racism, violence, and a divided America. The film stars Jason Clark as Nate. Carrie Mulligan plays his wife, Laura. They are landowners. Mary J. Blige stars as Florence, their neighbor. She's married to a sharecropper, Hap, played by Rob Morgan. Both of their sons, played by Garrett Hedlund and Jason Mitchell, served in the war. They returned to Mississippi to find bigotry and hatred, all enforced by the Ku Klux Klan. Let's take a listen. How long have you been back from overseas? Oh, just a couple of weeks. Much obliged, Mr. Triple Banks. You'll give yourself a wonderful day. Take care. It's all right. It's just a car. It must have backfired. Here's another clip. This place, this law, we don't belong to them. And I'll think of the farm, I'll think of mud, and crust and knees and hair. The bottom line, I'm way in. Four stars out of four. This is one of the best films of 2017. I felt like I was watching a literary masterpiece projected on the big screen due to the outstanding script. Dee Rees is a stellar director with excellent performances by all. Wow, what a movie. Check out my written review of Mudbound on sarahsbackstagepass.com. See you next week. And now back to Hollywood 360 with Carl Amari. Next time, it's the conclusion to Fibber, McGee, and Molly. Then Greer Garson stars in a tale well calculated to keep us in suspense. A good Christmas story from 1953. That's next time here on Hollywood 360. We'll see you next time.